and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, Alley Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we're speaking with Lauren Greenfield, Director of Generation Wealth, a movie that charts not only Greenfield's long career covering the extremes of wealth in American culture, but also the increasing sense that she has of the addiction that grips the world of wealth in American culture. So, Dea, I know that you were not in on this conversation. This was a conversation that our other co-host, Kate Wolf, LARB's editor-at-large, and I had with Lauren Greenfield. And were you able to see the movie? I sadly wasn't able to see the movie, so I'm just here for the introduction. But I'm familiar with Lauren Greenfield's work from the movie Versailles. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which I loved. Yeah. I mean, she has this really great way of kind of capturing the simultaneous absurdity and deadly seriousness of extreme wealth. Yes. And she does that really, really well in this interview. I would definitely recommend that you do see Generation Wealth just because it's fascinating. It's also interesting to see her kind of turn the camera lens on herself a little bit Mm because she talks about her own role in covering this kind of cultural phenomenon that she'd been covering for almost a decade or even longer in film. So let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. We're excited to have Lauren Greenfield in the studio with us today. Lauren is an artist, documentary photographer, and filmmaker. Many listeners will no doubt recognize her as the director of the award-winning 2012 documentary The Queen of Versailles. In her latest film, Generation Wealth, Greenfield looks back on the past 25 years as she has covered the frenetic celebration of wealth in American culture and life through her photography and documentary filmmaking. Part comedy, part tragedy, in ways that we'll talk about soon, I'm sure. It is an engrossing film that demands to be watched. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you so much. Okay, so there's so many different like <laughs> angles that we can take, and I have a yeah. lot of like questions about the film. But let's start first with the fact that this is perhaps like a uniquely personal film for you, because much of your time has been spent documenting kind of cultures that flowered around you in Los Angeles. But in this film, you're really looking intensely at your own work and what that suggests about a kind of larger cultural shift. Right. And I definitely didn't start it to contemplate my navel. I kind of started it because at the time of the financial crash and when I was making The Queen of Versailles, Mm. I started to think that maybe the pictures that I had taken since the 90s were kind of evidence of a seismic shift in our culture and in our values. And it made me want to go back and start to connect the dots, but also in a way kind of do an archaeological dig in my own work and Mm -hmm. figure out what it all meant. I had been doing kind of sociological photography about materialism and celebrity and body image and beauty and a lot of pieces that I felt kind of described where we had come to as a society. And in a way, the financial crash made that into a kind of morality tale, but Mm. I needed to really spend several years and went through over 500,000 pictures to kind of figure out how it fit together and what it said about us. You continued to photograph the same subjects after the crash. 
right? Something that I found really interesting in the film is there's a lot of kind of reversals of fortune. Almost every character has some shift in either their finance or their just kind of outlook on life. Do you think the financial crash reverberated with the characters in the film in particular? Or, Well, I think... In the film, what you see is everybody's searching for more, more money, more beauty, more Mm. youth, more fame, and that this has an addictive quality that's beyond just the money itself. Because in everybody's case, once they hit their goal, they wanted more. So it turned into, for me, something more about addiction. And the thing about addiction is you just keep going for more until you crash. And so everybody in the film has a crash. And the financial crash was a collective crash. And some of the characters like David and Jackie Siegel, who were in The Queen of Versailles, or Florian Holm, who was a very successful hedge fund banker in Germany, literally felt the financial crash. But a lot of the characters had other kinds of crashes. And the crashes were both part of a kind of morality tale, but also a, a moment of of insight and, and a possibility for recovery. Right. It does seem, in terms of the crash, I mean, there's fatalistic isn't maybe the exactly right word, but there does seem to be, especially as you kind of prognosticate, because a lot of the film is also thinking, like, how did we get to here, right? And I do want to talk later about what being here actually means. But there is a sense that kind of that this can only end in a crash. Like you don't actually see, I think, any kind of recuperation that will come in any other way other than absolute <laughs> collapse, end of it's Rome. It's the fall of Rome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As you say a few times. I mean, is that how you see this cashing out? I mean, I'm not a predictor of the future. so <laughs> Right. I, I you're an artist, but, though. So but I do like feel kind of... like it does feel like we're on an unsustainable path kind of propelling towards a completely unsustainable totally future. Totally agree, yeah. Unless we make a change, and it does seem like the only way to make a collective change is to have a crash. And Iceland was an example of that. And, mm-hmm. and there's a fisherman from Iceland who's a character in the film. And in Iceland, their crash was much worse than ours, and they weren't able to be bailed out. And so they ended up using the crash as a moment to rethink their values and realize that they had lost their moral compass and Mm. put in kind of institutional and societal change that came out of that realization. So people started spending more time with their families. They put the bankers in jail. They started buying local things instead of getting imported. They started knitting their own clothes. They, They made kind of systemic change based on that, and they went back to the fish as the source of wealth instead of finance. Well, do you think that, I guess maybe my other question here is, have we crashed yet? Because there's like the 2008 crash, or do you think that there is actually another crash that's coming? We have not crashed. And I think the crash is not just a financial crash. You know, as we see in the film, it's also a kind of moral crash Mm -hmm. and a kind of existential crash, like we don't know where we're going. But one of the big kind of disappointments for me in this process was that during the financial crash, a lot of the people I had documented who were affected by that had learned important lessons and Mm. spoke those lessons. David Siegel at the end of Queen of Versailles said, we shouldn't have built so big. Jackie Siegel says, I would be happy in a two bedroom. I just want to be with my family. 
there were so many lessons learned from bankers, from investors, from mm. people in the Inland Empire and Foreclosure Alley, all of these different lessons that were learned in the crash. And yet after the economy came back and after the bailout, a lot of a lot of people kind of went back to the same thing. And I think now we kind of find ourselves feeling very much like in a pre-crash kind of state. And David and Jackie Siegel went back to trying to finish building the biggest house in America. <laughs> and so for me, that spoke to addiction and a kind of relapse. Sure. Well, also in the film, you know, you kind of lay out a shift in cultural values from your parents' generation, which was, you know, hard work, helping others, becoming a part of a larger society, to then a kind of narrowing off and maybe more of a narcissism and more of a media-centered image of, of what a happiness or what a good life is. And it seems like everyone in the film knew the Kardashians. You know, the Kardashians come up so much, actually, in this movie, just as a reference for people. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that shift or what you saw in general as kind of how there's so many different elements in the movie that are all tied together kind of by an idea of wealth, but it's also just American culture. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that I was tracking was this change of values where we were going from an American dream where you just wanted something better for your kids. You wanted a house, but it was really a house as a part of a community to the kind of bloated American dream marked more by bling and narcissism and celebrity. And I think reality TV has been a part of that. I mean, the images that are on the media of luxury are much more dominant than they used to be. Right. Like when I was little, there was All in the Family. There was the Jeffersons. Then we went through Dynasty in Dallas. Then we got to reality TV and my super sweet 16, which Limo Bob's, one of the characters in the uh, film, yeah. son was featured in and keeping up with the Kardashians. And I actually never realized how brilliant that title was, but I realized we had kind of gone from comparing ourselves to our neighbors, keeping up with the Joneses, right. to literally trying to keep up with the Kardashians. And not only is it outsized, but it's fictional. Right. And so people are comparing themselves to an impossible standard. And in a way, that's really what Generation Wealth became about, is how we always want to be something that is unattainable. And that striving just leads us to dissatisfaction. It also strikes me that, to a certain extent, fantasy has always been a part of American life. But the one point that I think your film makes over and over again, sometimes explicitly, but often implicitly, is that fantasy has totally taken over our life, right? Everything is a fantasy of something, not just in terms of that, like, make something better, do more, get more, but more just like the Instagramification of life, that it's like, oh, I'm just living my fantasy. Everything's highly curated. We all kind of know, like in reality TV, that it's scripted, it's not real, but we also are like, well, that's how I want to live my life, right? right? Such fantasy seems to speak to a culture of decline, but I'm also wondering, how do we break an addiction to fantasy? I mean, I feel like it's very much like the Matrix. Like the fantasy is what keeps us in this kind of, as Florian calls, the gold-plated hamster wheel. Yeah, yeah. And the kind of backstory of this project or what's going on beneath this is that we've never had so much inequality and we've never had so much concentration of wealth in the hands of the few since the Gilded Age. Yes. And so like Chris Hedges says in the film that bling and fictitious social mobility has kind of 
replaced real social mobility because it's like the only kind of social mobility that many people feel is in reach. And so I think in a way the fantasy is kind of a survival skill, but it's also why people don't, you know, why we kind of accept it because, I mean, one of the things about Americans is they don't hate the rich because they always imagine that will be them someday. Right. Yeah. There's a, a part in the film where you, I can't remember the line exactly, but you kind of, what your role is in all of this, where you say, you know, you take pictures of these people, they popularize the image of them, and you're both critic and kind of promulgator of, of this culture. How have you, and I feel like the film grapples with that, but it's also, you know, you're a great photographer, it's it's your life's work, so you're not going to stop taking pictures, but how, looking back at this whole body of work. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that I'm promulgator of the culture because I've always walked the line of shooting for the major magazines. Right, that's what I said. Yeah. But the photographs have always had a critical eye. Definitely. Even when I did, like, I've even played with fashion, but it's really, like, being very subversive and critical in fashion. And I feel like I've been lucky in that magazines have supported that vision, but I've it's never been just, like, propping up the of kind of... Of course not. What that's given me is access to speaking about a part of the culture that usually we just get in the in its own terms. And so I've always kind of walked this insider outsider role, whether it's going back to the world that I grew up in and the west side of LA and documenting that with a critical eye or photographing Donatella Versace or looking at fashion or even with the Queen of Versailles, there's always been both an empathy where I can relate to the desires of the subjects and relate to them as people, but also a critical approach. I mean, I remember when I did Thin, my movie about eating disorders, it was excerpted in People Magazine. And one of the eating disorder subjects said, how can you be in People Magazine? They have all these really skinny girls on the cover of the magazine, celebrities. And I explain that my work has never been about preaching to the converted. Like if we can be in the biggest circulation magazine talking about eating disorders, that's where I want to be. Right. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Lauren Greenfield, director of Generation Wealth. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. So we are excited to have our own Medea Ocher in the studio with us today to give us this week's book recommendation. Medea, what are you recommending? Hi, Eric. I am going to be recommending a book called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. Mm -hmm. Um, It is by Craig Brown. It came out recently at the beginning of August. And it is an unusual but fantastic biography of Princess Margaret, who uh, was Queen Elizabeth's sister. Okay. And what I have heard about this book is that it's about what it was like to not be kind of in line for the throne. Right. right. And so did she, she abdicate in some way or something like no, that? No, so she was okay. never she was never actually in line and that sort of freed her from the many kind of constraints that the queen herself was under. Mm. And then she essentially became the bad one. <laughs> um, and the badly behaved one. Okay. Um, so the book is very fun because it's 
for at least for me, really uh, fun to read about the bad behavior of very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. But it also gives you this funny mixture of gossip and royal protocol. And royal oh, protocol, okay. I've I've always found really interesting because it's so very specific. Wait, do you mean in terms of like etiquette? Etiquette, or, okay. yes. Yeah, so Princess Margaret was this really interesting figure because she was not in line for the throne. Her sister became the queen. And it seemed like what she was really battling against during her lifetime, she died in 2002, but in her youth was the sort of prevailing, free-spirited, bohemian culture of the 60s. Mm. And she really ran in those circles with artists and, and filmmakers and and the way that she was raised, which was strictly as a royal. <laughs> so she, and it seemed like she was a really difficult lady but she did really fun things like she would show up to dinner really late and then she would stay really late and she would not get up from the table and that would mean that everybody else had to sit at the table until she left because royal etiquette required that everybody stay until the royal leaves and is she doing this to kind of go the people that are there at the table absolutely was doing it on purpose and then she would just sort of at three in the morning she'd just get up and leave and then that's when everybody was free to go so much fun. Oh, this sounds like um, fun. And I learned some interesting things. Like, for example, the royals do not say material, as in the material of this sweater is wool. Mm-hmm. They say stuff. The stuff of this sweater is wool? Correct. Because stuff is actually an older word than material and was used to talk about the fabric underneath a suit of armor. Oh, And so the royals, to this day, I assume... Maintain this protocol. Do not say material. They say stuff. I'll bet Prince Harry says material. I bet he does too. Also, not scrambled eggs, buttered eggs. Oh, interesting. These are the things that you learn when reading about Princess Margaret, her various love affairs, of which she had many, (laughs) um, how Picasso was in love with her, tried to propose. Sounds to me like she had a way funner life absolutely than her sister did absolutely and you do learn a lot about the queen and the ways in which what is required of a person in her position which is essentially maintaining herself as a symbol of a country rather than a person mm. all right can you give us the title and author one yes time? it is 99 glimpses of princess margaret by craig brown all right thank you so much Dea. that sounds great thanks Eric. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lauren Greenfield, director of Generation Wealth. One of the fascinating moments in the film that made me really excited to talk to you is this line that you're talking about. And at the very end of the movie, and you're not talking as much about wealth as you are about your own addiction to work, which is something that I 100% identify with. And my husband was watching it in the background and was like, oh, girl, that is you. (laughs) Um, So... There's a moment where you kind of say, and I'm paraphrasing, so of course correct me, but where you say like, like all of this is damaging and it's a problem and you're mostly talking about this addictive mentality, but you're like, but it's also what makes life exciting and it drives you to do things. And there I felt like I saw the beginning of a really unresolved question about 
kind of not just like your work as a filmmaker, but also just like, what do we do with this thing? It's endlessly fascinating, especially from a critical artist perspective, endlessly fascinating. But also you're documenting the real damage that comes with it, but feeling, it seems to me, a deep ambivalence about like, it's both good and bad. Well, because I realized that my own work and my passion for it also had an addictive quality. And one of the characters in the film, Florian, kind of throws that to me. He says, you know, even work can be an addiction. And it mm-hmm. has been for him. And it's had devastating consequences for him. And he talks about that with his family. And he said, how can a 100-hour work week not affect your relationship with anything sure. that matters? And that made me think about being on the road and being away from my own kids and just started a process of reflecting on the effect that my work has on the people around me because it is so all-consuming. But that doesn't mean I don't want to continue to do the work. But I think for me it's more about the film ends up going to more about what's the driver rather than the end game. Like there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with money itself. Some people have more of it and do philanthropy or whatever. I'm not saying money is bad. I'm more saying that we're a society that's kind of characterized by addiction, looking for something Mm -hmm. that we're not getting. And so we just keep wanting more and more, trying to fulfill a kind of emptiness that we can't fulfill. And so for me, that led me to kind of look at, well, why am I so obsessed with this? And, and why do I work so much? And, and I was looking to my kids and looking to my mom for some answers to that. <laughs> and I feel like in the film, what we see with all of the subjects is that there is some damage done, you know, or some trauma or some emptiness that drives the kind of addiction for more. Mm. And that's the ambivalence. I mean, I do feel like there is a possibility for a kind of awakening that happens with a lot of the subjects towards the end of the film. And I think I also had a similar kind of awakening, not that I quit photography or quit filmmaking, but it also just made me more in tune, I think, to my kids and the people in my family and made me want to be present when I could be present. Well, can you talk about actually having your, I can only imagine (laughs) how difficult this was to actually turn the camera. I mean, it does seem from the archival footage, you've been filming yourself and your family kind of privately for a long time, but there are moments where you like turn the camera on your sons and say, what is it like to not have mommy around? What was that like to go through that? Yeah. I, I mean, and yet I, they're still also part of the movie. I mean, it's like they're still in Mommy's movie <laughs> talking about how Mommy's movie making makes them feel. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of meta elements yeah. in the <laughs> I mean, I kind of when I started seeing connections between my own life and the characters, I kind of felt like I had to go there because sure. I knew I would not hold back with my subjects. So I felt like at this point in my life, looking back, it was only fair if I could be as honest mm-hmm. in my own life. And not that I wanted to deliberately include myself in the beginning, but where it became relevant, I felt like I needed to be willing to go there. And 
I mean, it was really hard to hear some of the things that came out in those interviews, but I feel like it also started a process that ended up being cathartic for my family too. Like we were mm. at Sundance and Noah participated in a Q&A and somebody asked him how he felt about his evolution in the film and he said, my Nana says to my mom that she wishes they had talked about those things earlier. Yeah. And I'm glad we had a chance to talk about right. those things earlier. And it has made our relationship better. And I feel like it has kind of cracked open our relationship. And when he said that, I felt like including him in the movie was worth it, even if nobody ever saw yeah. it. Yeah. But it, yeah. there's something magical that happens in the interview process where we're so kind of, it's such a, honest kind of space that in a way people say things that they haven't said off camera yeah. that happened with David Siegel and Queen of Versailles he was saying things that his own wife didn't know mm. and in the interviews with my family we talked about things that we hadn't talked about off camera yeah. something that's so beautifully shown in the film is how much children model after their parents and sometimes to really dramatic upsetting effect but if it's not too personal to ask, how do you think your children understand class and wealth because of the way you've lived? What kind of lessons have you imparted to them about money? I think they're very conscious of those things. Where was I with Gabriel where he was like, he saw a woman in front of us in the theater with two Hermes Birkin bags. And he's like, I need to take a picture of that. <laughs> I think he's very attuned to the signifiers, uh -huh. which doesn't mean he doesn't ask for brands. I mean, my little one is 12 is still very conscious, but I think he's conscious about it and wants to have conversations about it. He started noticing that in the sixth grade, a lot of kids started having name brands and people even started shopping for these special things that were getting dropped on Instagram early in the morning. And so we talk about it. And somebody told him that his sweatpants were not real Adidas. They were fake Adidas. <laughs> and okay. they told somebody else that they had a fake Adidas something. And the other person cried. And so I asked him if he cried. And he said no. And I was like, good, because it doesn't matter. Like, we just try to have these conversations. Yeah. So I think he's a little bit like me. He wants it. Of course, he wants to fit in. That's what middle school is really hard for pressures of fitting in. But yet he knows that it's silly to spend that much money on a brand name. So we, we try to have that conversation. Right. One of the things that's fascinating to me, and it happens about like midway maybe through the film, in which much of the culture that you're documenting, it's material consumption that appears in the form of concrete material goods, the Birkin bag, the Burberry accessories, all those kind of things, right? But then there's also a very odd shift, which maybe this is just me being too much of an Angelino to focus on this, but in terms of health and makeovers, that that is itself a new status symbol, right? Being able to go to, you know, the best gyms, gyms that optimize your, you know, a, a nutritional portfolio, Blue Apron, all these kind of things are kind of like the body itself becomes the site of a produced commodity, right? Rather than the yeah. kind of hermit yeah. crab identity yeah. of like, well, I've got the bag, I've got the shoes, right. I've got this, right? And that was a really important part of this journey. And Kathy is one of the subjects who kind of personifies that. that right, right. 
the body has become the new American dream for some, that it's not just about a house. It could be about a makeover for her case into the perfect body. And right. this is not just the a goal for the rich that we really see with plastic surgery and with kind of personal hygiene and makeup and fashion for women, a kind of trickle down of luxury. I mean, I was blown away when I learned that over 75% of people who get plastic surgery make $50,000 or less. Mm -hmm. So this is something where people borrow money for at high interest rates because it's so important to them. And yeah, I think what we see in LA now is I mean, wellness is a huge industry and you can have, you know, very fancy, expensive yoga pants to I was just get say, to your spirituality. Yeah, right. yeah. And in my book, there's a picture of a yoga class in front of Tiffany's at the Americana Mall. Oh my God. But, you know, and now we have foods that are Ayurvedic and mm -hmm. I mean, Whole Foods is a kind of designer. Food. Grocery store. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, so where does this end now? Even our president is someone who is the ultimate symbol. I think a lot of people voted for because he was wealthy, you know, because right. he has this mythic wealth. And because they think he's right, wealthy. Right. Because, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, as we learned from the movie, fake it till you make it. Right. It's yeah. just yeah. as good as the real thing. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump was elected towards the end of this journey. But for me, he was kind of, in a way, a validation of some of the things that I was feeling were we urgently needed to look at that he kind of represents all the values of generation wealth from celebrity to money to looking like he has money to the aesthetic of of gold and artifice in a way to lack of moral center and to use yeah, wealth kind of to post dominate and, and abuse others and beautiful women as kind of an expression of his success With plastic surgery yeah, yeah. There's so many, and reality TV, there's exactly. so many ways where he's kind of, in a way, the expression of mm. kind of the pathology of generation wealth. And so I didn't want to make the film about him because I felt like it's about, in a way, my contribution was showing the culture that made him possible. Sure. And at the end, towards the end of the film, there's a rally where he is speaking on his campaign and you see that David and Jackie Siegel from the Queen of Versailles are supporters of Trump. Mm -hmm. And he says, this isn't about me, it's about you. And that's what I kind of wanted to leave the audience with, that in a way we are complicit in the culture that made him possible. To just um, wrap up, since we're about out of time here, I'm wondering if, so generation wealth, then what's the generation that comes after this, <laughs> right? So what I'm what I'm wondering in a sense is one thing that I do remember from another lifetime when I was a fashion reporter, that a younger generation, what was then called Xennials and then Gen Y, Gen Z, those generations seem to have less attachment to a brand name, right? They actively don't want brands on their clothing. Again, depend. there's a bunch of other factors that go into that. But do you think that the generation coming up now, kind of like kids now, will they have a different relationship to wealth? Well, I think what we see in the film, because the generation in the title also gets borne out in the the kids in the film and we see a lot about parenting and the next yeah. generation and 
I feel like the next generation in the film is kind of the redemption of the parents in a way. Okay. And that there's hope in the next generation. We see Mijanu, who grew up in Beverly Hills and was voted best physique at Beverly Hills High, right. who was in yeah. the photograph on the cover of my first book, Fast Forward. We see her kind of unplug and move, raise her daughter in the country without exposure to television and really choose a very hands-on parenting style and a very different life for her daughter mm -hmm. because she doesn't want her to go through the things that she did. We see yeah. the same with Paris, who grew up as, as the son of a rock and roller who was never right. home. Yeah, yeah. And he got into drugs and, and felt very abandoned as a kid. And he is choosing to be a different kind of dad. And same with Gmo, who was kind of like a big baller, mm -hmm. rapper, mm -hmm. wanted to be super rich, and then found his kind of fulfillment by a more middle-class lifestyle, but where he could help his kids get a good education. So I feel like there is hope in the end of the movie because the people who have seen the worst of Generation Wealth try to make a change for themselves. All right. We've been speaking with Lauren Greenfeld, director most recently of Generation Wealth. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.